Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hello and welcome back to Octavia's Parables. This is Adrienne Marie Brown. This is Toshi Regan. And we are your hosts. And as always, we want to start off with some announcements from the Octavia Butler Extended Universe. Um, A couple of things. One is I was just alerted to this project called Earthseed that was commissioned through the Art Institute of Chicago. And it is music from Nicole Mitchell and Lisa E. Harris. Um, I'm not sure what to call it. It's kind of like abstract instrumental music have you heard of this yet toshi yeah it's been out for a while it's been out Um, for a while and for some reason it just hadn't crossed my path and i was like oh here's yet another interpretation of the work um so i wanted to lift that up and then i also wanted to name uh, myth media studios on instagram they have done this project called the black girl go bag and they uplift lauren olamina's go bag Um, which really lines up with a couple of our past episodes. But then they also have an outline for a coronavirus preparedness bag. And it's all done in these really lovely little illustrations. Um, And so, yeah, we just continue to see Octavia taking root amongst the internet stars. Um, So, yeah, those are some of the updates. Please keep letting us know if there are projects or um, art or conversation that people are having around Octavia in the world. And we will look yeah. it up. Right on. I'd love to uplift the uh, Boston Parable Path. Oh, um, tell us. Which is a collaboration of different artists and practitioners um, rooted in Boston, but from around the country. And we're, um, you know, one day parable of the sower in boston will happen someday (laughs) someday it will happen but we are on the path because you know now is the time and uh if you go to the arts emerson website that we actually have a website there illuminating the um the pathway and uh and soon to be adding uh some of the things that we're doing even inside of um this COVID universe Mm, that's exciting I love yeah. how there's that way that community finds a way, uh, community finds a way to continue to be in practice, in worship, in um, in learning with each other, <laughs> you know, the adaptations yes. sometimes that you could never have planned for are also really beautiful. Like what, what it's going to look and feel like when it does come to Boston is going to be very different because of this delayed adaptation. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some, there's yeah. um, a couple of new dates for Parable, um, for the opera as well, coming up in, you know, hopefully 2021, maybe near the end of the year. Yeah, on the safe <laughs> yeah, side wanna, of the year. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> as safe as we can be. Mm-hmm. So, hi, Toshi. Um, hey. We are dropping back into Chapter 11, and um, we're really in the heart of the book in in you know, the chapters don't get any easier from here. Um, and so just wanted to continue to let people know, like we reserve the right for spoiling <laughs> or spoilers. Like we are intentionally unveiling the content of this book and that there are content and trigger warnings sort of embedded in the context of this whole thing, because yes. we are in a period where there's rapid change, rap, lots of death, lots of violence and, Lots of adaptation, lots of brilliance, lots of survival, and we're, we're showing up for all of it. So just want to keep bringing you present. Um, yeah. Toshi, will you start us off with some Chapter 11 Earth Seed? Uh, absolutely. Any change may bear seeds of benefit. Seek them out. Any change may bear seeds of harm. Beware. God is infinitely malleable. God is change. Earthseed, the books of the living, Saturday, October 17, 2026. Great. Thank you. So mm-hmm. here we find ourselves about two months after Keith was killed, found, and 
tell us a little bit about what is happening inside of our Robledo community here. Yeah, I I would love to to tell y'all what's happening, and I want to start that off by saying I I have read this so many times. I think yes. like you have read it, and lots of people listening have read this book so many times. But right now, I I was like, this is our alarm bell. This chapter. Yes, this is it. You know, this is our alarm bell. This is the like. Everybody go to street corner and ring the alarm bell. It's so many things. Yeah. Um, so this is when the pace starts to pick up and it's like, oh, that vibration of change is actually palpable. You can hear yes. it. You can feel it. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's also really specific. Mm-hmm. So it's specific to things that we are thinking about right now. Yes. And we might not have them particularly on like, this is the most important thing. Or this is the most important thing. Like we might be like, you know, where my children are going to school is the most important thing. Yeah. You know, and that is super important. But here it's so interesting. So some of the some of the things that are happening um, first, uh, right out of the bat, there's a, a break in and, a yes. you know, uh, people climb over the walls and they um, bend everything and they have all of these tools and they break into um, the Cruz family's house. Yeah. And we haven't really heard like so much about the Cruz family except for that they're a family in the community. But the thing about it is that you, what you do get here is how much people are protecting themselves. Yeah. You know, so they have, everybody has alarms. Um, everybody has barred uh, windows. Everybody has a security gate at every entrance. Um, these people broke in. They, Lauren doesn't know how they managed to break in and not set off any alarms. Right. Um, she said right. they use simple tools, and um, that that got me right away. Um, just in terms of the understanding of of the lengths you're going to go to protect yourself. So you have the wall. Yes. You have the the barbed wire, you have the giant gate, you have the key, and then you have your individual houses. There are 11 houses yeah. um, inside of this community. And then each house is is really loaded um, with its independent, you know, security systems. And it doesn't, this is, this is the chapter where that doesn't work, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, people are finding out and it links back to Keith. It's just like ever yeah. since Keith has left, that they have been getting um, broken into and robbed. So he yeah. just keeps And broken spreading. into in a way that feels like people understand exactly how to break in and like what to bring to break in and all that kind of stuff that just, yeah, it's kind of hard. Yeah, people know what they have. And mm-hmm. um, it's also really interesting, like who is breaking in? Yes. So there's a whole, there's still like a whole class um, classism issue out there. And so these are the the poor people. These are the people that, you know, um, there are robberies happening everywhere, but these are people who are figuring out like how to access, um, you know, our community, their community, um, and really like, you know, particularly like systemic ways. And it doesn't seem like there's an end to it. Yeah. So that happens. Um, then there is uh, Olivar. Yeah. Um, there's, <laughs> there's, you know, um, Olivar like is uh, a town. It's a, it's a, it's a town that gets taken over by a multinational corporation. Yes. Um, KSF, and this is another thing that I feel like is an alarm bell for us right now is is people get kind of worn down into making that decision that towns have a relationship, you know, obviously to the climate and that this town has got water. It's a beach town. It it existed from like tourism. It, you know, it flourished. And then with the uh, changes happening climate wise, like that industry was not able to continue. Yeah. The town gets poor, poorer and poorer and people make the decision to sell the town. Yes. Um, And so, that that happens. And um, the other thing is that, you know, the continued um, vibrations inside of the Alamina family, um, yeah. there's just more um, of a disagreement between 
Corey and Reverend Olamina about how the family, what direction the family should be going in. Yeah. Um, it's very, very rough. Um, and then, uh, and like and then particularly Nola. how they're responding to the opportunity and, or threat of something like an Olivar, right? Which is like, you know, Lauren and her father are like, not awesome. <laughs> you know, like we could see the debt slavery. This doesn't feel like a good option yeah. for us, but Corey is kind of interested and, you know, sees it as a possibility and it just continues to show the sort of fault line at the, at the heart of the family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's, if you, in this chapter, you really see how, um, you know, your, your particular way of like surviving, like what mm-hmm. the things that you do that make like one step possible and to make it. And then you start to see like what falls apart, like what isn't as strong as you thought it might be. Yes. And then how to make, how to be adaptable. And Olivar is such a, a crossroads for people because you're, you're, you're not super wealthy, but you're not out. You actually have something, you know, most of these people own their homes. Most of these people, yes. Um, have some kind of job, some kind of work that they're doing, even if they're doing work inside of the community of, of gardening and taking care of kids and having this the school. Um, there's a really active and hardworking community. Yeah. And um, they start to really be like, okay, with these people entering our community, like we actually have to leave, but they don't have the leaving idea that Lauren does. So they're like, next step is Olivar. And yeah. Um, and Corey's over. <laughs> she's over it. She's over. Exactly. She's like, I'm. I'm it's done. Like, like this is not how I thought my life was gonna be. <laughs> no, and not only that, but now that we're here, like, really, we want to. You, you want to stay here? Like, how are we gonna stay here? That's the other thing. Is several families are applying, and uh, Reverend Alamina makes the point that you know this is a black, you know, Latinx. Of course, he doesn't use that language, but that's what he's yeah. saying. It's a black and Latinx community, and nobody from Oliver is gonna gonna want us. And yeah. um, you know, so this is this is it's a it's a big issue. It is it's really huge. a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to um, you get to really hear from Marcus, um, yes. who throughout the book, yeah, you get to. To see and hear for um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Marcus. She yeah. says he's the only one in the family that's actually beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't believe. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren, I just, I'm going to disagree with you. Um, but it's a but, sweet sign of her love. You know? Yeah, it is really something else. So, um, and Lauren, uh, Lauren makes the decision that she's going to leave. Yeah. And I love this, you know, there's there's two quotes in here around this. The one is, I'm still learning how dogged people can be in denial, even when their freedom mm-hmm. or their lives are at stake. And she wonders how her father has lived with that for so long. Mm-hmm. And then this deciding that she'll leave. I've changed my mind. I used to wait for the explosion, the big crash, the sudden chaos that would destroy the neighborhood. Instead, things are unraveling, disintegrating bit by bit. And that feels so hyper relevant to this moment where it's like it's not an atomic bomb. It's not this massive, explosive, Mm -hmm. singular event. It's one after another, after another, after another of disintegration yes. of norms, disintegration of values, disintegration of a centralized culture that holds people to like, here's how we be with each other. Well, um, I love the to me, the parallel of the, this chapter and where she starts going with this of like the disintegration of, of Robledo at the same time as the option of Olivar and how we get into these moments where disintegration makes it seem like we only have very limited options that are actually not of interest to us. You know, it's like, this is not what's going to serve us in any way, but these are the options we have. Um, yes. And she doesn't decide to leave Robledo for Olivar. She's like, no, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to go actually. 
Yeah. And I think that's some of what's happening to people right now. Exactly. You know, I think um, in one of the last episodes, I, I brought up Ruby Sales. You and, did, yeah. um, Because I had just done an interview with her um, for the uh, Allied Media Conference closing. Yeah. And I, I should find the whole interview because it's... Did it's we tell un- people that those are available? So if you go, if you look up Allied Media Conference on YouTube... All the I did the opening plenary. Toshi did the closing plenary, uh, closing ceremony. Um, yeah, and so I got the tea from Chani Nicholas uh, with with my sister Autumn about how the upcoming astrology for the rest of this year is like super dumpster fire. Like whatever you thought had happened was not even the peak of this year at all. Um, and then you came in with the closing ceremony and the ruby sales wisdom. And yeah, tell us a little bit about what she taught. Well, I think one of the things that she really illuminated for me was, um, you know, this idea of how the empire works. Mm. And she uses the word, the empire is like, you know, she'll say the empire is, is, is really good at repetition, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. the, and so you can imagine um, how it's, we're all participating, you know, a majority of our community and not everybody, but a lot of us, a majority of our communication is few through systems that we don't actually um, have any control over and that they're, they're run by algorithm. And, um, and so we're, we're, you know, our pathways are being picked and you have to work like to get out of those pathways. Like you got to go visit, you want to see somebody, you got to go find them and visit them. And it's, and it's, you actually got to take like a couple of steps now. I remember when it was much easier. Um, but she's saying how much that has to do with, and it's not just social media, but just the kind of whole um, way that you are inside of a cycle of of like repetition of energetic vibrational um, repetition that's that's like has to do with you know really important issues to your life. And so if you look at COVID nineteen, like if you look at COVID nineteen, all of us can can see that we're in a cycle of repetition. Like we're totally in a cycle of repetition. Exactly. We literally are still, you know, okay, wait, wait, how do you get it? Like, you know, it's, it's confusing. Wait, who do you, you know, what -hmm. should you do if you Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, like, is it, is it true that a mask help or they don't help? Like we're still (laughs) in a, you know, um, know, is it, is it mandatory or not? Well, it depends on where you are. And it's repetition. That's like, oh, this is, this is, maze uh you know kind of creating a maze out of data right so it's like there's actual facts there's a ton of unknown information but then power is really served by our constant state of confusion so authoritative voice saying things that aren't true questions around things that we know actually are true and you see how the population is just like well I don't know. I'm overwhelmed by the cycle, so I'm going to stop trying to understand it, which is a lot of what I feel like we're seeing now is, you know, I I just went on an anniversary trip this past weekend and was just noticing like, oh, there's just tons of people who are like, I'm not even trying. I'm not trying to Mm -hmm. understand. I'm not looking apologetic for not wearing a mask. I'm just not doing it, whatever, and just being like, yes. Oh, this is what it looks like when people are like, it's just too confusing. I can't suss it out. So I'm just going to keep pretending everything's normal. Yes. And not only that, but even people, I think people are resisting like our communal possibilities. Absolutely. You know, like that, like this idea of independence versus this idea of congregational movement. Mm. And people are, you know, people are resisting it unless it's, it has to be the most you know, biggest. So, so the George Floyd, um, Black Lives Matter movements, like created incredible congregation and yeah. it's, it, it's extending and it's vibrating and it's been all over the world. And, um, and it's, and it's actually, you know, still vibrating and there's still, still protests going. happening. Absolutely. Um, and you can even start to witness the back backlash against that. Like, you know, the police, are doing like really crazy actions, you know, right. um, or how in response. it's been called extremist behavior, extremist, you know, radical extremist behavior instead of just, you know, life saving, yes. life protecting behavior. Yeah. 
Yeah, or you even protest, you know, like yeah. even if you just don't like it, like you ain't got to call it something mm-hmm. that's not. But yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's also just like that, you know, we almost can't recognize how hard we're being hit back. Mm. So there's a connection between the the protest and the dysfunction of the what schools are trying to decide to do because people are aligning, you know, the idea of wearing a mask to protest it's yes. like oh y'all are out here protesting well you don't have to wear a mask like your freedom is at stake look at these people so you know it's exactly. become this issue um you know it's almost and it's almost like you know pro-white supremacist to not wear a mask so exactly well yeah. and that i think that piece is perhaps the most intriguing to me is how how well the particularly I experience it is just like oh this is something conservatives do really well but you know I'm always aware that I'm like I might not be able to see my own <laughs> shaping in this but I'm like right. how well I feel like conservatives do at politicizing things that that are not well served um, where the where the the multitude is not well served by it being politicized. So I feel like this happens all the time where I'm like, oh, this is how conservatives get people to vote against their, their economic needs, their class interest, um, their, their cultural interests, because they'll turn it into a partisan issue. Healthcare being turned into a partisan issue where it's like, oh, we're voting about that. I'm like, you're voting about whether people have access to health and, I saw some tweet today where it was like, someone was like, American football is important. We need it, you know? And it was like, <laughs> so that's a value system that we need. We need football, but healthcare can be debatable. And, yeah, you know, th- so there's just things like that where I'm like, oh, wow, it's just fascinating where you see the loss of a life-oriented value, which then I think makes it really, to me, important that, Lauren also has this moment of naming, um, naming Ursi, naming these books, that yes. these are the books of the living. And I keep thinking about this myself, that I'm like, I'm interested in a politics of the living and how do yes. we reclaim, claim slash reclaim that language? Because I know that there's like the pro-life movement, the pro-life, you know, organizing. And yet I'm like, there's nothing pro-life about those people who have co-opted that language, who have taken that language. Not, nothing at and all. Like most murderous people ever. Exactly. So, and then I see Lauren Olamina understanding at the age of now 16, this is a, a life, this is about life. What I am feeling into, what I'm hearing into, the ideology that is calling to me is a, yes. an ideology of life. And I just, I think there's something so powerful about that, that that's, oh, this is the conversation that we're in and that we're recognizing that the people that we're in movement against or that we are in opposition to, you know, we talked about that suicidal ideation, that collective suicidal mm-hmm. ideation, that desire to not live. And I think of something like an Olivar as an extension of that, right? It's just like, yeah. it's too hard living. <laughs> I think of that it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die, you know? So mm-hmm. I'll just go over here to Olivar. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and like kind of outsource my fear, my safety, my protection, you know, just to be able to sort of numb my way through it. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you say it right. You say it so right. And I I think like the other thing about this particular chapter that I think all of us can, you know, have our own meeting with ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, each of us, because we're not all you know, we're not all going to do the same thing, exactly. but to, um, that thing about wanting to live is very, very strong. Yes. It's super strong. It's like, we, we tolerate so many things just to stay alive, just to live. you know, just to live. And so like, think, you know, I always want to, I always want us to see the beauty in that. I always want us to see the expansion in that, that we come here to live. You know, we come here to live. We don't necessarily know where we are, but, you know, we come here to live. And as we start to discover where we are and who we are, the the assaults on someone else's living is diabolical. It's it's anti existence. Right. And um, and then to add to it, you know, these levels of of torture and violation. 
um, that you get, you know, immense pleasure of, of harming people in all of the ways that you can think about it. And then to add to it that there are actually ways to be congregational and to create a level of basic living, you mm. know, for all of us that mm-hmm. we can have the things that humans actually need as shelter and water and food and a place to be together and a place to um, not be in constant, you know, mental and physical conflict. And then to develop your your circles and your societies um, based on the needs of your particular community, right? That's right. So, you know, that's what we want. And, well, and I think something that I just want to throw in here, because often I find when people give the list of like, here's our basic needs, I think yeah. we forget that there's also a need to hold big questions, hold big ideology, have right. creative difference, um, have things that make us want to create culture and create art. And like, you know, when I think of a situation where it's just like, well, I have a roof over my head and I've got stuff to eat, but I'm like, oh, but like, would I be okay if I had no internet or if I didn't have a bunch of books or if I didn't have, <laughs> you know, folks to debate with or, you know, and I, yeah. it feels important to me that in some way, I don't know that Earthsea could have been born if there wasn't the container, um, this tightening container on Lauren, right? And on mm-hmm. the community of like, there's not all the normal stuff that we turn to for entertainment. And then philosophy blooms in that desert and right. blooms inside of her. It's like, it's actually not enough to just survive. Destiny is a, necessi- is a necessity. Destiny is, yes. is very, you know, it's like we can't live without destiny. And yes. I feel like once she determines that she will leave, it's like she's putting um, a timeline to her dance with destiny, right? Where it's not just mm. like, oh, I know that Earthseed is, you know, we have a destiny to take root amongst the stars, but she's like, when I turn 18, I'm going to be on that path like, actively and I need to start I'm preparing going. myself, right? roadmaps I need a name for this I'm gonna and she's already thinking about teaching and that that piece to me she knows she says I'll adapt where I must I'll take what opportunities I can find and she's gonna teach (laughs) you know and I thought you know I remember in the last chapter and I don't know if we brought this up but in the last chapter it sort of mentioned that she was caught having sex by by Mm -hmm. her dad caught having sex with Curtis and uh, or a neighborhood boy, but I think it was Curtis. <laughs> you know, it's like she's, she, at the age of 12, that that happened. And now we see her at the age of 16 already planning for how she's going to be leaving her community, where she's going to go, that she's going to be a teacher, that she has this destiny. She has a timeline. She has so much of an adult sensibility of responsibility for her life. And that kind of pivots me into the questions I have for this chapter, because one of the first questions I have is if we actually can't provide or protect a childhood for our babies, then how do we orient or reorient ourselves to the young adults that they actually are, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That it's like, oh, you're having to hold the work of adulting. You're having to hold the emotional labor of grief and adaptation and thinking about the future. And I think sometimes we still want to infantilize our young people, you know, like as if they're not living in these apocalyptic conditions with us and having to navigate and negotiate so much themselves. Um, So that feels like a first question. And I just wanted to see if there's anything that occurs to you as someone who's been raising a person, (laughs) you know, um, into and through this, you know, someone who is, um, you know, already significantly older than Lauren Olamina, but still, you know, mm-hmm. that you're like, this is the baby. And yeah. yeah. And all of our, our babies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I, you know, I was raised like civil rights activist. Yes. And so I think I got to hear a lot of truth and witness. My mom took me everywhere. So yeah. I really got to see. And I think with, um, with, with my kid, who's a grown, a grown woman, but Tashawn, yeah. As she was growing up, I think we we uh, Bob and I really wanted her to um, have all the information, and she got she got a lot of you know scary things. You know, yeah. she got um, 
she got taught how to um how to kick out of the lights out of the trunk of a car if she got put in one and she's yeah. fairly young um she got she got taught um that if anybody grabbed her off the street she was supposed to fight for her life right there right and there. she got yeah. she got right there i was like don't don't go in a car i was like yeah that's it so you they if they're going to kill you let them kill you on the street and in broad daylight you know mm. all kinds of like things around her physical protection um, and then she also got like told the truth about anything that she was interested in. And then we also listened to her because mm-hmm. she saw things that we didn't. Yes. Um, yeah. And she had adventures that we didn't. Um, just, I just remember her being, you know, going to school. And I remember our decision to like, you know, when we went through the process of her going by herself. Um and we did everything a little bit later than people her age. Like she got a phone later. She, uh-huh. she got, uh, you know, she got a, she got on like social media later. Mm-hmm. Um, we did everything later um, because her, we were like her capacity to understand the reach of it was she didn't get it, That's you know. Right. And we waited till fifteen, and now like people just give their kids access to social media now they're like 10, 9. right? Well, and know, I think 11. that's also changing pretty rapidly, like. Because of this pandemic period, I feel like there's so many more people who are, even if they had have had a value around like, oh, my kids won't be on screens all the time or on social media or whatever. Now it's like, oh, crap, like this is their way to be friends or their, yeah. their way to not be talking to every... me nonstop all day or whatever. You know? yeah. like, mm-hmm. So some of yeah. it's like not even, it's like you don't even have the choicefulness of it. But mm-hmm. I really appreciate what you're sharing there because there's some stuff that's like, okay, this is this is the young adult stuff that this person needs for this period of time. And here's what we're offering around it. And then there's the stuff that the parents don't offer. You know, for Lauren, it's like her dad catches her. Who knows how long that that had been a practice of hers. Right. Um, and, or, you know, she she's developing this whole belief system inside that her dad doesn't fully grasp, know about, couldn't grasp, you know? And I think about like, Oh, how many young people in my life are, have worlds inside them or whole faith systems or whole visions of something that they either don't know how to express yet, or because of the way we interact with them as still children can't, can't quite, communicate to us. And so that felt like an important piece. You know, when I think about folks who are in community that is multi-generational, intergenerational, to really be thinking about the children in your life and and the young people in your life and like how much can you handle their lives, their real lives. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that you can handle their real lives, the more you get to be a part of, of those lives and shaping those lives. Um, a second. That's a great. That's yeah, a, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I'm I like just to you know. Up your I will just say that my nibbling, <laughs> my oldest uh, um, bio nibbling, turns twelve this coming week, um, and I'm just really sitting in. You know, I was going back through and looking at all the videos of them and pictures of them and thinking how much has changed in their lifetime and how much they're they have the most brilliant mind and you know, all of the babies do. And when I actually tap in and drop in and listen, I'm just like, you understand how to schematic, how to build a world. You, you trained yourself with Minecraft on like construction of worlds and all this stuff. And they think about danger. They think about safety. They think Mm -hmm. about analysis. They're so astute. And my instinct is still to be like, you're so cute. And like, how do I (laughs) let the you're so cute fall back? (laughs) You know, it can still be in my heart. But how do I let my curiosity that's like you and I are together, hopefully surviving this next period of history. And what do you offer that? What do I offer that? And um, what is your unique perspective as someone who's 12 and not as bought into all these systems? What is my unique perspective of someone who's 41 going on 42 trying to opt out of these systems, you know? So, yes. So interesting. Yeah. And and maybe I just wanted to add is um, maybe how many people are having conversations with their kids at whatever age they are, you know, age appropriate or age, you know, the way you know your kids. 
yep. um, about school and about um, about the pandemic. And, um, and if you're making choices to, if your school district is being open and if you're making choices around that, whether you're like, you know what, we're going to stay home or yes. I'm going to have you had a, a really nice, big, juicy, open conversation with them or several yeah. um, about the experience and about what it means. Um, just just today, the revelation that many of us already have already known is that, you know, um, kids can get COVID and not yes. only the, the regular symptoms of COVID that we're familiar with, but some other thing that just sounds absolutely horrible. Yes. Um, so we're not like in that, you know, world of like it's an adult thing um, yeah. at all. Also, yes. you know, remember when they were like, dogs can't get it, cats can't get it. And it's like, yes, no, exactly. And it's yes, like, they can. None of this stuff is, you know, it's it's living in a society where people are always trying to rush ahead of data to yeah. act like they know things. And I'm like, we endanger ourselves so much by that. Um, yes. But I really appreciate that question of like how to have those like juicy, honest conversations with our kids and to still hold the role of comforting, you know, and I, I think of that balance of like, Oh, I want to be able to comfort the children in my life when they're scared, and um, and yet, how do I how do I let the comfort also be based in reality? That it's like there's yes. stuff that we don't know. We do know that we love each other. We do know that we're figuring our way out through this. We do know that, you know, how do you ch- ch- raise children in a way that says the conditions are going to be changing nonstop? And I know that for me, I was not raised by you know civil rights organizers. I was raised by military family and so change was a huge part of our lives all the time Mm -hmm. and um the conditions were always changing but you know my parents and there wasn't a lot of like choicefulness for me in it right it was just like I would find out like now everything's about to change and Mm -hmm. my parents I think did a good job with that you know just being like there's opportunity in what's ahead there's opportunity in what's coming there's opportunity in the new space like I know that I'm as adaptive as I am now because my parents framed adaptation as a quality that I should develop and that would make my life better and make me excited, right? Um, yeah. But I also feel like they would do the one-two of like this change is happening and then catch my grief, inevitable grief of having to let go of whatever we had established mm. and then help me to turn and face and get excited about what was coming but they never gassed me up, you know, which I really appreciate. Like, it was just like, there was a year where I was finishing the 10th grade at Atlanta and I was in a performing arts high school and we got the assignment to move to Germany where there was no choir at all. Right. Ooh. And so I was like, I'm the next Jasmine guy. Like I'm dancing and singing. I'm in the theater <laughs> yes, program, darling. Yes. And I'm doing fishnets every weekend. And like, it was a whole that like I was on a theater, theatrical path, you know, and I, feel you. I definitely would have been in Hamilton or something, you know, like that was just where I was heading. Right. But then instead, I had gotten into a summer camp program where Gregory Hines was going to be teaching tap dance. Like I was not a game like this was the real Ooh. thing. And then we get the news. We're going to Germany. I'm devastated. Right. And there's no choir there, right now. you know, but I pivoted into writing. I landed, I joined the journalism program, whatever. And having that experience at that young age of just like, you're, you can see a whole life path ahead of you. That may not be the path for you. If it is the path for you, you'll figure it out again, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but I feel like I remember the devastation. I remember them letting me be sad and also be with reality. Like we can't, you're not going to be able to do that. We're on a different path now. And I just see so many parents in my life right now where I'm just like, yes, what you're having to do is adapt while also teaching your children to adapt with grace. And it's not easy. Right. Um, and speaking of adaptation, my, my next question is, how do we notice the pace of crisis as it's increasing? And how do we know when it's actually time to shift our plans so that it's, mm. it's not like, you know, oh, some, some stuff is happening over there. Some things are happening over there. Like, at what point is it like, it's time to leave here or it's time mm-hmm. to, um, you know, it's no longer safer to stay than to go. And right. um, I think throughout history, there have been 
moments like this where it was like, oh, this was the moment where the people who picked up on the pace of crisis increasing were able to get out and to live with a lot of changes. And the people who didn't stayed and were caught up in systems that they could actually not fight, not escape. And Mm -hmm. so I think about that now in the here and now where it's like, all right, like, you know, already many things have happened that I know at some point in my life, I said, if this happens, I'm, I'm an expat, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, if, if there were ever concentration camps here, I'm out. Like if they ever close the, you know, put a ban on anybody to be able to come in and out of this country, I would no longer stay here. Like, you know, if, <laughs> right. It's just one thing after another. I mean, when, when the election was happening for 45, I was just like, if he wins, I'm out of here. And yet I haven't left. I'm still here with the increasing dangers. So I just think that I'm very interested in like how communities sit together and navigate that question because I know that I'm here because my family is still here. And the conversations we've had have not, you know, have not landed in place. I'm like, oh, all of us would go. And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. I can't leave them. And I wonder for each community, you know, I have a friend who's like, we saw the signs and we moved and now they're living in Amsterdam, you know? Right. Um, I wonder for each unit, right? What are the things mm-hmm. that you say, oh, I would leave if this happened. And then what makes you actually leave versus not leave? Yeah, I love that question. And I don't know, I think I want to add a little something, which is like, yeah. what what do you shape mm-hmm. um, in the face of, of, your understanding of of um particular situations um that you know look at that lauren saying chaos is god's most dangerous face and mm. shape you know shape god um yes. so that you know cuz i find there's some really interesting beliefs in you know severe systems of oppression that people are still occupying yeah. And and so it's like when when did, you know, if we look at the past and we look at some of our our great movements in this country at some point people were like, "Oh, this isn't going to change. We I have to shape it." You know. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is, you know, um with this ability, uh workers of America in the, you know, what 30s or whatever, <laughs> we're going we're going on strike. Yes. Like we're leaving. And even though we're in like Jim Crow and segregation, you know, black folks going to strike and white yes. folks are going to strike, you know, yes. and maybe meet up at the, at, you know, secretly at the Highlander School of Folk Music to like plot strategies exactly, um, and be in danger constantly. Mm-hmm. But we're going to we're going to do that in the civil rights movement. Um, you know what we're going to do in the face of severe um, violence is we're going to have a nonviolent movie movement yeah. that um, you know offers uh, the contrast yes. that also is so strategic. Um, it exposes in such an incredible way the level of systemic violence that has already already been in existence, but also shows the madness and the escalation of violence towards nonviolent people. Yeah. Additionally, houses a spiritual movement yes so that people develop a skill that you know they actually didn't have before yeah of communication of of um you know what is the thing i almost want to say a a zen movement mm-hmm. but i mm-hmm. just you know i don't know if that's the right language for it but um i mean i know and, what you mean <laughs> you, you know. know what i mean yeah. but there's a way that you become a certain kind of human elevated when you resist the offering um that you know will devastate you even in the moment you know I asked my mom about this and she said we'd all be dead if we didn't do that you know she's like we never we never would have had the level of you know arms or whatever to you know combat to go into a a a war zone with them yeah so when do you when do you start to shape your situation when do you start to say well you know what i know this is being offered but this is this is actually we're going to do with it um so i love that question and i 
I also really love the implications of it because one of the things I, I pay attention to in our movements now is how much, how often there's a call for the performance of a resistance or the performance of an opting out versus the actual opting out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the performance of a strike where it's like, we're going to do a day where no one sees us, or we're going to do a day where we black out our internet, or we're going to do a day where we do this versus the, the actual opting out, the actual departure, the actual coming up with a new plan. And I really appreciate those where it's like, oh, there's moments where we will not survive if we don't opt out. And there's moments where we won't survive if we try to push back a certain way. And it's like we have to be able to have those conversations in a strategic assessment based way. And I often laugh because I'll see, you know, Internet pundits or whatever come on and be like, "Okay, we're all going to go on a strike. And I'm like, you clearly have never done union organizing like you don't know what that means, like a strike without a plan for how you're going to attend to people's material needs during that time is not a viable strike. Uh, that's not a, that's not a real strike. Um, you know, it's not a sexy thing to say. It's actually not a sexy thing to do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so much of what, you know, how we're surviving this moment and how we have survived past political moments like this has been, when are we ready to do the thing that is not sexy but absolutely necessary, you know. Yeah. Um, and yes. and the opting out matters, and I think that leads into the other one of the other big questions I have for this chapter, which is which ideological differences really matter, and which mm. are less important. And I asked this, you know, the Corey, the conversation between Corey and Lauren's father um, has a a big piece of this because I'm like, okay, like you know, you get with someone and you're like, oh, you believe in this is being okay. And I think this is okay. And then something like Olivar arrives where it's like, oh, like whether you're a capitalist or not actually matters a lot now when you look at whether moving into a company town feels like a viable thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and who it feels viable to. And um, or, you know, I think of conversations around like, are we going to arm ourselves or not? And it's like the moment when that goes from being a theoretical, like, oh, we should all have guns, you know, that'd be cool to like, no, but really like, <laughs> do you believe in that or not? Because that's an expense and that's a training and that's this and that's that. So that feels like an important question, um, that I would love to see people have very intentionally with people that they're actually in intimate community with, right. Is like, which ideological differences that we currently hold feel important to you? Which are, mm. have we named them aloud that we actually just have different stances on these things? Um, in, in, in a crisis or if we had to adapt quickly, how would we navigate the, these ideological differences? And mm-hmm. I, think, I think, you know, being an anti-capitalist or not is an important one. I think how people orient towards climate change is a really important one. I think how people orient towards home and child rearing these, you know, there's some big ones that are like this, this right now in this age of COVID is showing up in a major way is Mm -hmm. the ideological stance that you have on, on economics, for instance, is shaping a ton of how people are orienting towards whether we reopen or don't reopen. Um, whether we break the rules and keep our kids out of schools where we know that they are basically heading into death threat environment or not, right? So there's stuff like that that I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, are you in touch with those ideological differences? Um, now that nothing is theoretical anymore, we're just yeah. living it all. We're um, living it. And then the final question I had for this chapter is I love that the book of the living, the books of the living is how Lauren articulates her understanding of who Earthseed is for. Like she's crafting a congregational um, offer and she's like, the living is who I want to show up inside this room with me. Mm-hmm. So I wonder for people, how do we show that we are committed to living outside of our words and what we say, what we articulate how much of our actual literal attention do we pay to life and the practices of living 
versus to crisis, numbing, death, and dying. And the distinction I want to hold in here is I see grief as one of the processes of living. I see it as work of living, right? That like, if you are alive, you need to be good at grief. (laughs) Like it's going to happen. But Mm -hmm. I, I find you know, emergent strategy for me is my my way of saying an articulation of like, I'm in practice of living, which means I'm in practice of adaptation, practice of interdependence, practice of resilience, you know, practice of, of iteration and so on and so forth. I'm in the practice of creating more possibilities. And I often find that I'm trying to invite people that way um, and they're looking back over their shoulders, but look at all the death, look at all the death, look at all the death. And right. I'm like, yes, that is consistent. That's always there. If we keep our attention on the death, that's what we will see and generate and know how to do. How do we bring our attention to the living? So for mm-hmm. you, I'd love to hear this, Toshi. It's like, how do you show and practice your commitment to living? I mean, I... I'm definitely so happy to be alive and so happy to be alive right now. And now that I've lived all these years, I value it even more because I know it's not so simple and easy to be alive. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I fight for, I fight for my life. I I fight like my back went out this week and I just like talked to my back and I was like, you know, um, you're going to have to be done with that. Like, because we... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're not trying to go to like so many places to get work done That's and right. you know and it's like my body's missing the practitioners and I, I just mean. was like what you know I fought for it and that's like really small yeah. but also really big you know in a way it's just to understand that I'm so into it I'm so available and mm-hmm. one of the one of the practices I do have is like I do read news, but I really am particular about it. And then I stop, you know, yes. I don't I can't just do it all day long. I, I try to, to to make a decision about what I want to know. And yeah. um, and then to have community news um, to That's hear right. from people what what they're experiencing, um, what's happening to them. And I hear much less now because of the isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mm-hmm. I have to reach out for how you doing, what's going on, how are your people, um, what should we know? And, um, and I think that that, you know, I actually have a concern yeah. that I'm, that I'm not like hearing, um, as much as I used to. And then also mm. just, um, the, the sensory, uh, sensory communication that when you're with people, your whole That's body right opens up to them and there's and then you start to you you know each other through other you know parts of your being so Mm -hmm. you know I and that's one of the most amazing things about being alive and I have never you know just I honor and and respect it so much through this particular time and um also have all of these dead people songs in my culture so, um, mm. you know, my, our people came here, um, you know, they didn't come here on their own, um, and right. they were brutalized and they saw a lot of death. They saw yeah. a lot of death, you know, a lot. And, um, and they mm. also saw a tremendous about amount of, of, um, taking away of their people or their children or yes. somebody you got to know or something. I mean, it's just devastating. It's all of this music. I mean, there's. There's this song my mom would sing, um, hallelujah, 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 my Lord. I'm gonna see my friend again, hallelujah. And then it tells this refrain inside mm. that, that are in a lot of songs. Death come to my house, didn't say long, looked over there and my mother was gone. I'm going to see my friend again. Hallelujah. 
And I love that song. I love that song. I love it. Ooh, I, 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 re- love I recorded it. <laughs> it's on my record, Spirit Land. Um, <laughs> no, it gave but me I, the scruff of the neck, spirits chill. Yeah. Yes. Our people didn't mm-hmm. say death is not happening. In fact, they say it's, it's, it is happening. And I, happening. when I was little and I heard that song, I love when my mom said, I'm going to see my friend again. And yes. I, it warmed my heart. Like it made my spirit, mm-hmm. um, my little baby Toshi spirit, feel very um, endless, like about myself yes. and my own death. Why am I thinking about death as a little child? Because yes. my people told me what it is and That's comforted right. the experience in the embrace of, you know, friendship, which was really meaningful to me as a kid to hear anything mm-hmm. about friendship. And we tell these stories we have multiple stories about death and so it is overwhelming when it's at a, a a catastrophic level an intentional catastrophic level that's what we are all experiencing right now yes. a, a intentional you know killing of massive amounts of people through systems of um of neglect um through weaponizing um this virus so that you know you can't say I murdered somebody, but that's what you're doing. Yes, and, exactly. And it's the I think the same thing that um, our people experienced during the hundreds of years of slavery. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, here you are as a commodity, and that's what this particular government is shaping. Here you all are a commodity, and you're. And then how can you benefit us? <laughs> and that's what do right. we need? You know that's the shaping they're doing. So that that's accessible to to me. Mm-hmm. It's accessible mm-hmm. to you to create systems that simultaneously name something, but give your body and spirit an alignment and vision. And that particular song, Hallelujah, 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 is one of the best things you can sing. I, I, you know, always, um, <laughs> always, whatever. It just it sounds good and it feels good in the mouth. And I know some people mm-hmm. don't ever want to sing, and it's fine. You find find what is meaningful to you, <laughs> right? What's but your word, baby? Yeah, it simultaneously um, puts you in a, a a state of relationship with your entire being. That's right. And then it confirms like what you have witnessed and felt. That's right. And then it allows you transportation to the next moment. That's right. Oh, yes, Toshi. The transportation. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I love that that too, because as you are sharing it with us, that it's also like music. <laughs> you know, it's like music is one of the ways I know that I'm alive and that I practice mm-hmm. living and like letting music move through me is one of the ways that I know uh, I'm I'm still committed to life because that feeling when you are fully aligned with a note is not a game. It's so important. So yes. I think here is a good place to end for chapter uh, 11. And I think we can do our closing credits. <laughs> so um, Octavius Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and myself, Adrian Marie Brown, produced by Kat Aaron, and the show art is from Krista Franklin. Um, music for Octavia's Parables, Always See the Stars, uh, performed and written by Toshi Regan. Uh, There's a New World Coming, performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, written by Bernice Johnson Regan, with additional lyrics by Toshi Regan. Hallelujah is a spiritual available to everybody. Um, all of these songs are inside or based on the novels uh, Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. Mm. And you can find us on Twitter at O Parables. And you can also find us on Patreon and sustain our show at patreon.com backslash O Parables. We have transcripts for you now, and hopefully you're enjoying those, and that's one of the things that you can be contributing to in addition to just the love labor of this work. And um, we will see you back here next week with Chapter 12.
coming. Everybody.